Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On Super Tuesday, we were joined by Nancy Gibbs, editor of Time, who discussed parallels between the disruption of the media industry and the upheaval of politics during the 2016 presidential campaign. Moderating the event is Tom Patterson, Interim Director of the Shorenstein Center. We're just delighted uh, to have Nancy Gibbs here, uh, who's the editor of Time, uh, the first woman uh, to hold that position, uh, and has the distinction of writing more cover stories for Time than any other person in its history. Uh, and I think Time must be kind of in the, about its 90th year or thereabouts, so uh, that's quite a distinction. Uh, and also co-author, along with uh, Michael Duffy, who many of you know, uh, two best-selling presidential histories, The President's Club, um, a 2012 book, uh, spent 30 days on the New York Times bestseller list, and The Preacher and the President. And uh, if you're guessing who The Preacher is, uh, you probably guessed Billy Graham, who uh, spent a lot of time with a lot of presidents at the White House. Uh, Nancy, welcome. Thank you. Um, it's especially fun to be here on a day when the entire political world has to remain in suspended animation uh, while democracy does its thing, and then we wait to try to find some meaning in it. So I'm, I'm very eager to get to talk. I will say that my all of my plans for uh, exploring this very disruptive campaign were disrupted yesterday um, in a very typical way. Uh, in the middle of the day, I simultaneously had conversations with my White House correspondent, who was at the White House conducting a joint interview with President Obama and Misty Copeland, the principal dancer of the American Ballet Theater. And you can say, how is it the time is conducting a joint interview with the President of the United States and a prima ballerina? And it is a reflection, partly, of the fact that, as many of you have noticed, this White House is eager to look for new ways to tell their story and explore issues in unconventional media, unconventional platforms. It, when the President sat down with Marilyn Robinson in Iowa, um, was another example of that. And so on the one hand, we were all wrestling with what is our obligation and opportunity in partnering with, contending with the White House and its agenda to tell a certain story um, in a way that I think could also be important and inspiring and uh, interesting to our audience. At the same time that that was unfolding, simultaneously, my reporter and photographer who were covering the Trump campaign in Virginia. Some of you have seen the footage of what transpired, but I got an SOS from the reporter who was getting on Trump's plane but said the photographer is not with me because he's been detained because he got into a fight with a Secret Service agent. And so the last 24 hours I have spent uh, writing a statement about what happened, writing a letter to the director of the Secret Service, discussing what are the protocols for not just how what everyone who has ever covered a president, traveled with a president or a vice president knows, you don't go near the Secret Service, you don't touch the Secret Service, you stay clear of them, you let them do their job. But in this case, the candidate was nowhere around and this was a matter of how the Secret Service was essentially patrolling the press corps. 
And this has been, as many of you know, a very fraught area, particularly with the Trump campaign, where you have uh, a level of heat and animosity at those rallies, much of it directed at the reporters who were covering the campaign. And so I was very concerned about the any the health and safety of my photographer who you know was violently thrown to the ground. I was concerned about how I was going to continue covering this race. I was concerned about what my obligation as an editor is to um, to engage in making these new rules in a landscape that feels entirely uncharted. And so it's actually perfect that as I'm here to talk about a disrupted campaign that all of my plans too should have been disrupted. I think <laughs> that we are watching something that in, in one way is not at all new and in another way feels entirely new. When I say not at all new, I, I could say Martin Luther was the first Western media star who used new technology to deliver a message. And by that, I don't mean theses nailed to a door, I mean the printing press. And uh, Shorenstein has published a fascinating paper about how conservative media particularly arose through uh, the 30s and 40s and 50s through pamphlets and then talk radio and direct mail and the internet and cable TV to provide al alternative forms of messaging to get a message out in um, around a media establishment that they felt was was completely controlled by an establishment mainstream liberal um, agenda. And so in that sense, disruption is not new, disintermediation is not new. Uh, George Wallace in 1968 ran aggressively against the pointy-headed intellectuals who couldn't even park a bicycle straight, as he put it. Um, and yet in another sense, I think we are seeing something we have not seen, or maybe we are just seeing uh, the possibility of these age-old trends succeeding in ways they have not before, because technology changes everything. And are we now witnessing a campaign in which the outsiders are able to build an audience, deliver a message, uh, create a platform, all of their own construction and without regard to any of the traditional entities that they had to deal with as brokers. We have seen the parties themselves cut out, we have seen the donor class cut out, and we have seen the media cut out in, in ways that parallel what has happened in every other industry. I was, I was struck but when, I think it was TechCrunch that noted that we are living at a time when um, the biggest transportation company, the fastest growing startup, Uber, owns no vehicles. The biggest accommodations company, Airbnb, owns no real estate. Uh, the biggest um, retail companies, Alibaba, Amazon, own no products. They are they, The idea that the middlemen are gone and that we are in a completely new kind of transaction is one that is happening all across our economy, all across our society, and so why should the media be any different? I think that that is a uh, bracing situation for those of us who have spent our lives as professional journalists. But I also think uh, it's a fascinating opportunity, and I would argue a moment for some humility, which may be a precondition to a deeper 
understanding and a wiser road forward. I think if you put journalists through a 12-step program, we would probably have a hard time um, admitting that we are uh, not in control of what is happening to us or confessing those we may have wronged or making any kind of amends or coming up with a way to move forward appreciative that the world we are moving through has fundamentally changed. But the opportunity um, goes with the challenge. I think that, that one of the reasons that the media has been itself disintermediated is because um, we have gotten a lot wrong, particularly in this race. You can argue that, that I was saying this morning, uh, Pache Churchill seldom have so many been so wrong about so much. And in the case of both uh, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, of these two very surprising doppelgangers on the political stage, um, the way in which they were discounted that they cannot possibly prevail because we have we have systems and rules and and arbitrators and power brokers who will just prevent anything this complete completely wild and unprecedented from happening that has all turned out to be wrong and I think it was particularly interesting that they have operated in very different spheres obviously different parties in different ways um, and yet they each can teach us as citizens, as voters, as scholars, as storytellers, something important about where we are as a country and where we are going. Um, I think humility would also probably be the right uh, starting point for the exploration, because if we don't assume we know where we are and where we're going, we're more likely to be open-minded about where this road could lead. I encounter a great many people who are really unnerved by what we're seeing. Um, change is hard, and fear seldom brings out the best in people or in institutions. And so it is going to take, I think, a particular kind of courage on the part of the press, on the part of the political class, even on the part of voters, to uh, explore the new territory that we find ourselves in. But when I talk about opportunity, and I really do believe this, for those of us um, in journalism, Never before, never in history, have we had the power to reach the audiences that we can reach now. Henry Luce, the founder of Time, who built an extraordinary publishing empire in the 20th century, could only have dreamed of having the audience that I have now. And he could only have dreamed of having the kinds of storytelling tools that we can bring to bear. The way we can analyze data and present it, the way we can tell stories on multiple platforms at multiple times. Oh, I forgot the one other thing that was unfolding yesterday, um, which is out of mind because it's occurring in Kazakhstan, but it is where my video team and my chief science reporter are making their way across the Kazakh steppes to be there for the landing of Scott Kelly returning from a year on the International Space Station. And this is a story that we found so incredibly fascinating. How do, you, how do you possibly tell the story of an astronaut spending a year in space so that scientists can judge what that much time does to the human body? And of course, you need a control subject to do that. Wouldn't it be great if he had a twin brother? I mean, this is the most incredible story. And so, so we are getting to tell this amazing story simultaneously in video, and in our magazine and online and hook up 
classrooms, through time for kids to talk to the astronauts on the space station. This, this ability to leverage the tools that technology gives us to shape our conversation, to encourage people to take risks, to go to new places, to set off on new adventures is unbelievably important. So I recognize how scary this much change is uh, and I live with it every day. But I also really do believe that if we get this right, if we use these tools well, if we are bold and creative in how we set the new rules and map this terrain, that this can be a golden age, not only of journalism, but of governance, because these tools apply every bit as much to those who are looking to shape policy and shape governance at every level, um, and how we can shape our role as citizens. Because if you are a citizen with a good idea looking to solve a problem, your ability to rally people to your cause and to inspire them and to lead them, again, has never before been as great as it is now. So with that, I am very curious to hear what is on your mind on a day like this. Uh, and we can really go anywhere, anywhere you like. Um, although I will say preemptively, my one thing is I don't make predictions. And so the who is going to win and what is going to happen, I actually think has consumed way too much journalistic airspace. That is the one thing to which we will have an answer. <laughs> and so all the time that we spend guessing or speculating or, or looking into the entrails of polling that has proven reliably wrong seems to be time not well spent. So other than answering who's gonna win and what's gonna happen and who's gonna be on the ticket and which states are in play, um, I will happily go anywhere else you would like to go. Nancy, thank you. So, um, you know, this election obviously has caught the pundits, the party leaders by surprise, caught the media by surprise too. Um, how have you had to adjust your coverage plan to the changes uh, that we're seeing in the campaign, if at all? Well, I have to say I envy a lot of the new players in this race who, you know, when, when not just CNN, but BuzzFeed is able to do man-to-man -man coverage uh, for months on end, which is a very expensive enterprise. And, and to be able to be doing it on all platforms, to, so to be sending not only reporters, but photographers and videographers to cover these campaigns day in and day out. Um, I don't have 1,200 people in my newsroom. Mm -hmm. And so my challenge has been, how do we, how do we pick our shots mm -hmm. and, and decide where to focus our efforts? And that has, you know, that is that is the reality in the age of constraint. But I also have tried to be uh, disciplined about taking advantage of the fact that Time.com can cover what is happening minute to minute and hour to hour, and that is one kind of coverage. While the magazine, which is a a more permanent uh, snapshot of moments in time, can do something very different. And you know, in the olden days when all of us only had you know, an evening newscast or a daily newspaper or a weekly magazine, our hands were tied in many ways. And so in that sense, it has been very liberating. Uh, I will put a challenge to the room to think about because, and this is heartfelt because I have a dilemma. Today is Super Tuesday. Tomorrow I have to close a magazine. Uh, here, here are my visual aids for you. <laughs> Our political covers, most recent, back in August, back in August, Donald Trump, 
deal with it. In September, Bernie Sanders socialized this America. In December, how Trump won. And in between Iowa and New Hampshire, I know what it's like to be knocked down. And of course, this is the challenge of coming up with a cover of a candidate who is coming out of a win, but probably heading into a loss. And so how do you not, the one thing I think drives voters crazy is when we preempt them and disenfranchise them. And so what I do not want to do is imagine a magazine closing on Wednesday in which Time announces that it's now clear this is going to be a Trump-Hillary race and the rest of you can go home. So I would be curious about what would you do? What's the story you think needs to be told right now at this moment? What's the statement that needs to be made or the issue that needs to be explored? Um, because that's what my next 24 hours is going to be about. So welcome, <laughs> welcome to my world. I can use all the help I can get. So, okay, uh, open for questions. And again, we start uh, with the first couple from students. And uh, you can either ask a question or you can give uh, Nancy advice on the cover. Sure. <laughs> Sir. Hi, my name is Colette Clark. I'm a master's student for public administration at Kennedy School. Thank you. Um, and I'm one of those last of the breed read you 48 weeks of the year, you know, get your subscription. I love you very much. <laughs> Me and the doctor's offices. Um, so my question is, I'm a lifelong member of the military, and um, I am uh, deeply grateful and put a lot of responsibility on the media and journalism to kind of keep the integrity in the game of what our leaders do and what is actually happening. So what do you think, I'd be interested in your views on, as journalist outlets kind of give way to some of their baser thoughts, you know, some of these disparate outlets, and kind of erode the professionalism of journalism in some cases, and kind of the viability of the journalism model that you probably deal with, um, you know, the sustainability of print and journalism. What does the future look like for those institutions that rely on you so significantly? It's a really good and, and really important question. And I know that in previous um, sessions here at Shorenstein, you've been exploring uh, the business model for journalism, which poses a challenge to the, the public service that journalists at least aspire to perform. And, and what we're seeing is um, a lot of different business models, whether it's the business model that depends on the beneficence of a billionaire, um, which historically in this country, uh, a great many media moguls have played a critical role in building and sustaining media empires, uh, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, but we are seeing that model. We are seeing essentially a nonprofit model um, I'm a little wary of a government-supported model. I think you know, there's, it's, it's just too much a part of journalism's mission to hold those in power accountable to be dependent on them for their survival. But I do think that when it comes to covering critical institutions, whether it's uh, the military or any other institution, that, that fortunately there is still really excellent work being done. Uh, even as we are in a period of, of real challenge and of economic challenge, 
I also think, again, that we are in, in something of a golden age. And the, the quality of investigative reporting that is happening, even as many institutions are struggling to devote those resources, I think you know, many of us probably felt a certain twinge at watching Spotlight win the Oscar, um, and thinking about, okay, how many, how many institutions now are prepared to have an investigative team that can spend six months, a year, two years, digging into one story, and how many stories might we be missing? Uh, but the flip side of that is that so much more information is available to so many people and that in a sense we are, we are raising a generation now in which everyone is in the media business. My daughters are in the media business. <laughs> Their understanding of media, um, of publishing, of, of writing, of sharing photography, is, it is like a language that they are completely fluent in compared to a profession that one trains for and enters. And I don't think we've even begun to see what is that what that's going to mean for our understanding of institutions because you know citizen journalism uh, can get a bad name, but I do think in a in a fascinating way more and more citizens are becoming journalists. And so uh, whether it is on social platforms or on their own blogs or on their social feeds that that we are able to learn about how people are living and how institutions are functioning and problems that are being solved in a way that even, even the most enormously well-resourced newsrooms couldn't have covered. So I, 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 I wish that I had you know, a 20-person investigative team that I could deploy on stories for years at a time, and I don't, and that makes me sad. But that doesn't mean that no one else, that these stories are always going to be you know, remain buried or that no one else is going to find them. John, please. Thank you. My name is John Gibbs, same last name. I'm not sure if there's any relation there. Of the uh, Alabama Gibbses. That's right, yes. Um, I'm a uh, mid-career master of public administration student here at the Kennedy School. And I just had a question about the, a question about the issue of bias, whether real or perceived. So, uh, a lot of people out there, whether rightly or wrongly, feel that the mainstream media tends to go really far in the left direction. And I think one of the reasons that uh, channels like Fox News or people like Andrew Breitbart or the, um, the right-wing media have really seen such a rise and have so much popularity is because people seem to go there um, as a refuge from what they perceive to be a bias in the mainstream media that they're not going to see in their preferred news outlet. So, do you see any actual bias in the type of reporting that comes out of the mainstream established media, or is that mostly um, fantasy that's perceived by those people? And if you do see any kind of bias, has that affected the downfall of traditional media? Uh, yes, I do see bias, and yes, I think it has contributed to the, the antipathy towards media, and I, we've seen all that polling, but I don't think it's the bias that is most commonly the charge that's always leveled at us. I don't think um, it is the ideological bias or an agenda that is being pursued uh, so much as it is a bias towards the good story. And in that sense, a bias towards conflict because conflict drives narrative. Uh, a bias towards the unusual and the, the um, sometimes the extreme. Uh, and this is, 
this is where I think, and I go back to humility, that it, that as a profession we need to take some responsibility for um, how we are perceived. We know from all sorts of research that the stories that people are most likely to share on their own social platforms are stories that are positive or inspiring or exciting or sometimes just cute, but we'll leave aside, you know, puppies. But I have, I have actually talked to my reporters about an institutional hostility towards writing, for instance, a positive profile of a public figure. <laughs> that the accusation is you're in the tank or you're, it's source building and that it can't possibly be because that public figure is actually doing a good job solving a pressing problem that deserves to be recognized and scaled and shared. Now that is a really serious problem because if on the one hand we have the opportunity for creative solutions to be shared and scaled quickly because of technology, but on the other hand we have an institutional bias towards actually searching for and discovering those positive developments, well then you have a problem. And so I think that you know, there has, there's obviously been a great deal of criticism of the press for the amount of attention given uh, to the Trump campaign and that he is, you know, that he is a, that has been disproportionately benefited from the amount of free media he has gotten. To which I would say that if you are in the news business, you have an obligation to cover what is new. And, and what we have seen uh, is something unlike anything we have seen before. And things that he has been saying and doing um, are things that no major party candidate in recent years at least has <laughs> said or done. And if you go back and you look at at least for the first couple of months of, of very heavy news coverage, a very substantial portion of the Trump coverage at least took the form of obituaries. He cannot possibly survive an announcement speech that calls Mexicans rapists and drug dealers. He cannot possibly survive saying that John McCain is not a war hero. He cannot possibly survive uh, calling out Megyn Kelly in the way that he did uh, one after another after another after another. Yes, there was a huge amount of coverage, but the coverage was all, oh, he's done for now. And yet, as we have also seen, you know, it's not only that it didn't kill him, it made him stronger. And you can argue that within uh, the audience that he was speaking to being criticized by political analysts was, um, was very good news for the message that he was trying to, to send. So I do think that, that it certainly isn't true that, that uh, the reporters who are giving so much coverage to Trump are doing it because they are either ideologically supportive of his agenda um, or even ideologically opposed, it is that they are, that he is an extraordinary story and like it or not, he is an extraordinary story. And this campaign is an incredible story. It has been from the very beginning, if you had told me it would ever be the case that 24 million people would watch a primary debate in August, I would never have believed it. And so I think that there is a bias towards um, towards the new and towards uh, that which drives narrative and towards a good story, which sometimes conforms with partisan issues and sometimes doesn't. But I, at least in my experience, 
uh, do not routinely come across journalists who have a political agenda that they are looking to pursue in the way that they are covering stories. Having said that, I also think it is, you know, because we are human beings, it is something always to be mindful of. And there are, there are many, many ways, some of them very subtle, in which personal experiences and instincts and prejudices come to bear in, in what we present and the choices that we make. And you know, we're making choices every hour of every day. What picture do we choose? What headline do we write? How do we you know, set off to investigate this story rather than that story? There are a million decisions that are informed by a very complex set of motives. But I think it's easy to overread the accusation of ideological bias as opposed to uh, just the bias for, for chasing the unusual um, and the new. Okay, so the floor is open. Uh, students, non-students, Arthur? Uh, Arthur, Arthur Applebaum, my teacher. Um, so, so you talk about uh, disintermediation, and I can think of at least two different ways in which uh, the news is being disintermediated, especially political news. Uh, and I think they may pose different challenges and opportunities. One is the disintermediation of journalism itself. So um, the large-scale um, organizations that edit and filter have now been completely opened up. If you have a laptop, if you have an iPhone, you become a citizen journalist. Uh, this strikes me as wholly good, except for the fact that I think everyone needs an editor. Um, but, but aside from that, this, this, is, this is just great. And again, aside from the fact that there's no business model for it, this is a good thing with a capital G for democracy. There's a different sort of disintermediation, which I, I'm, I'm a little, not sure what I think about it, which is that the candidates themselves, or the political activists or movers themselves, have direct access to the public in unprecedented ways. Um, not that I would want to censor that, of course, but the fact that people can um, speak directly to millions and millions of citizens without any kind of filtering, editing, response, challenge, poses a, a, creates a different kind of model of democracy. And it could be these two kinds of disintermediation are in good balance in that you have many, 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 many different citizen journalists. Everything that is said directly by a candidate um, will get challenged. But I'm not sure what, what the happy equilibrium will be eventually. So I wonder what you think about these two different ways which uh, the news is disintermediated. I, I think you're right. I would My only uh, addition to the first is that in a way everyone does have an editor because people will decide to unfollow other people. Um, and, and I think you know we, we see especially younger people being mindful of that, that they are speaking to the audience that they have created and, and therefore there is a kind of editing that, that occurs transactionally. You know everyone is both editor and publisher and author. But the you know the other one of the of the candidates being able to go direct to um, to their public. The most fascinating example of this uh, to me is Bernie Sanders, who Tyndall did a did a survey of the 2015 coverage and found that uh, ABC World News Tonight devoted a total of 80 minutes of coverage to Donald Trump and 20 seconds to Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and yet these are the each of them. Notwithstanding that enormous imbalance, each of them emerged at the end of the year as the two surprising front runners coming from the outside into the very center of the arena. And we just saw we just saw Sanders, you know, forty million dollars 
raised. And you know, his average contribution is roughly $27. This is an extraordinary thing to have two such different disruptors at the same time. I, I think that it, it's certainly true that, that uh, Trump is even more interesting. In some senses, his campaign is headquartered in Trump Tower and on Twitter. Uh, and yet, he has been more willing to engage with traditional mainstream media than, than most candidates we have seen in the last few cycles. And it is true that you know he keeps the reporters at his events in the pen, but it's also true that he is calling in to the home shopping network. I mean, he is, Sam Feist talked about this, I know when he was here, that, the, that the, this is a candidate who will go on any show, talk to anyone at any time. It is not like he is hiding from or avoiding the mainstream press. And, and that is a remarkable thing, too, that he's doing both of these. It isn't one in place of the other. And so um, I think this is one of the ways in which this is not like anything we have seen before. But in a sense, he has, he has more worked around the party and the donors than he has uh, the media. He has, he has worked around the media in a way, but he has also engaged with us. Whereas, you know, as you can see, he, he has no need for the donor class and is, you know, is, I think when you talk to his, his supporters at his rallies, the billionaire who doesn't owe anyone anything is a big part of the appeal. That is really not to be underestimated. Uh, and not owing, no, owing anything to the party bosses is also something that I think uh, is very, very attractive to people who feel as though um, the political establishment has made promise after promise after promise. Uh, and failed to deliver on any of them, and the whole thing just has to be blown up. And at some point, this is really just whether they, they like him, dislike him, agree with him, or disagree with him, they think this is a guy who, if he ended up in the White House, would just burn things down that need to be burned down and started over. That is a fascinating, terrifying um, kind of message to have whatever portion of the electorate wanting to send, but I do think it is one that you know, we need to take seriously. Michael, please. I guess this follows on from uh, my friend Arthur's question, which is just pointing away at disintermediation a bit. Because your answer suggests that there's a lot of media around, and they are mediating between um, the candidates and the public. Is it something else, just the loss of media's authority? I mean, the, the that is, people listen less to your opinions. So it's an authority issue. There's as much media as ever. You just don't have the same authority. I don't know, maybe this is fantasy back to some time that never existed, namely that editorials would leverage support for candidates in important ways. When time pronounced, the world trembled, as it were. And we're in, a, we're in an age where it's your authority that's in question in some ways. That, I think that, that I think that's exactly right, uh, and and the the analogy I would use is that in you know 1953 when Time put Joe McCarthy on the cover and called him out as a demagogue for a very mainstream Republican leaning uh, institution to do that had a seismic impact uh, when. People were coming to me this fall and saying, you know, you have to call out Trump as a demagogue and as a fascist, as a bully. It's it's as as though 
we are in 1953. <laughs> it is, you know, quite apart from whether or not that is my job, it is even if it were, it would not have the same impact. Arguably, you know, the, the, the greatest editorial impact uh, that I had was a GIF. When we did the interview um, for this one, we shot, and inside I can show you, uh, we brought a bald eagle named Uncle Sam, of all things, um, to his office, and he, he posed with the bald eagle. And in the course of that photo shoot, the eagle at one point attacks him. Uh, the the four-second gif of the symbol of America attacking Donald Trump is a more powerful editorial statement in 2016 than anything that the New York Times or World News Tonight or the Wall Street Journal could possibly say. And so uh, I do think that there is an authority issue. And it would, it's probably, uh, I'm an apostate to say there were probably good things about that. Um, but I think that it is one of the things that, that when you hear the, the whimpering uh, within journalistic circles about why isn't anyone listening to us, how is it that we can be you know, yelling and screaming about this and it doesn't seem to be having any impact, I think it is reflecting that sense. I think you're. I think you're exactly right. Hi, Nancy. I'm Marilyn Thompson. I'm a Shorenstein Fellow. Um, did the press also get it wrong on predicting the oversized role that money would play in this election and uh, the influence of the super PAC? Meaning, thinking it would have a big impact and finding that it it doesn't. You know, we have been. We as an institution have been serially wrong about that. And you can ask President Connolly, President Forbes, President Perot, um, that there have, there have been throughout history either self-funded or well-funded candidates who went nowhere. That, that we know money does not buy elections. Um, but that doesn't say it doesn't buy influence in all sorts of other ways and at other levels. The, I think the one thing that it may be impossible to buy is the White House. Um, so in, in a sense to say that, oh, it turns out money doesn't matter. And again, you know, Trump is so fascinating. The guy who doesn't need the donors, it isn't just that he doesn't need them because he's a billionaire. He doesn't need them because he, at one point, I don't know if it's still true, but he did not have a single paid ad up and running in a, in a Super Tuesday state because he didn't need to. Now that's incredible. And so, you know, the idea that it would be possible for, for any candidate to conduct a campaign in a way that he could, he could prevail entirely on free media and not have to spend a dime uh, would have been unthinkable. And yet here we are. Uh, but that is not to say that money doesn't matter in politics and that it doesn't really play an important role uh, in how policy is formed. And, or at the state level or at the local level. It, doesn't, it isn't the money doesn't matter, but on the national stage, I tend to think it's, it's much, much harder to predict uh, the role that it's gonna play. And so yes, the idea that, the, that somehow this election was gonna be determined by George Soros or the Koch brothers or Sheldon Adelson, I think uh, to, if, if that was ever part of the narrative, I think that that was you know, demonstrably been proven, proven wrong. Yes, sir. <clears throat> My name is Chuck Cogan. Uh, I'm a former employee, uh, timing at a very low level. I'm a former journalist with the and 
not all of them do. <laughs> anyway, uh, I was blown away by this film, since I'm a native of the Boston area, but I, and it occurs to me that unless you have to play on Super Tuesday for your cover, uh, this is a very hot topic. The film has just won a prize. We've had the, the, uh, the uh, Oscars last night, and uh, I think it would be an interesting cover to show this Portuguese kid who's, who went to the Oscars alongside Mark Rubolo, who played him in the film. Hmm. But you may have to cover the two scenes. I may have to. <laughs> it's but a very live topic, and I must say I was blown away by the film, being a native of this area. There's so many taboos that were broken by it. No, it was it was it was a very powerful film. I had not seen it until you know having a long flight a couple weeks ago, and so it's you know fresh and fresh in my mind. But I, I think journalists have a very soft spot in their heart for any film that makes us look like heroes. So <laughs> we're, we're a soft touch, I would say. Yes, please. <clears throat> Hi, I'm just the senior citizen. I think the big story is why Americans don't vote. And is there anything that, that Time and other journalistic entities can do to get Americans out to vote? It's such an important thing. I think that's a great uh, question and an important one. And I'm actually heartened that at the level of engagement that we're seeing and the turnout. Now, turnout on the Democratic side so far has not been up, but turnout on the Republican side has been explosive. Um, and we will see how this unfolds going forward. I, you know, as a, not as a journalist so much, but as a citizen, I wish we would make it easier to vote. I wish um, whether election day is held on a weekend or we get a lot more sophisticated about uh, online voting or, or uh, extending in, in technologically and in terms of time of just how easy it is for people to vote. I, um, I'm concerned, obviously, at things that are taking us in a different direction and making it harder for people to vote. Um, on the other hand, I think, you know, it's it, there's a responsibility of citizenship to to pay attention and to make reasoned decisions and the, that, that as an effort, when I see low turnout, um, sometimes I take that as a measure of people being generally contented with the direction the country's going in and that they're not worried enough to think that they need to get to the voting booth and make a change as you know that may be my chronic optimism but uh during certain periods where people have felt like the most important things going on in the country are not happening in washington they're happening in silicon valley or they're happening in a laboratory somewhere and uh and they're not worried about the general direction of the country they're less inclined to think who gets elected is really going to matter i suspect we could see very high turnout this year because i think people now really do believe it matters who wins it and not just because of supreme court vacancies uh, not just because of our our commitments and challenges overseas but because of a fundamental sense that that significant parts of government are not working and need to need to be reformed and who can do that and what that will take uh, is sort of a central question of our time but it isn't that oh we can just let government operate and it's not going to impinge on our lives in any way. I think, I think people have been very mindful. I would compare this, say, to the 1990s when 
as a decade, if you think about it, the Cold War had come to an end. The enormous stories of the 90s were almost all occurring far away from the universe of politics and governance. It was They were occurring in uh, the explosion of the information age, the arrival of the information economy, the, the extraordinary explosion of multiculturalism and diversity in this country, in the decoding of the human genome. All of these stories, which are, were tremendously important, were ones that were happening tectonically, under essentially underneath the headlines. To the point that in 2000, at the end of that, that decade, you have a presidential race that effectively ends in a tie. I mean, it was almost a perfect reflection of, of where the public had been. September 11th starts just a tremendous change where, where the headlines are completely different. The role of government, the role of the president, the power of the executive becomes completely different. You follow that then with uh, economic upheaval and the, the events that we have had both at home and abroad since then. We have now been in a season of enormous headlines in which governance matters, leadership matters. The choices that leaders make have immense impact on people's lives. And even though very important things are happening in the realms of technology and of, um, of biology and medicine and of society and culture, which I don't discount, I think people's awareness about the role that government plays has resurfaced powerfully uh, in this generation compared to an earlier one. So I, I hope to see turnout go up. I think the role that the press plays partly is uh, not telling people that their vote doesn't matter, not signaling to them that it makes no difference who wins or it makes no difference whether they exercise their right. And there are all sorts of ways that we can encourage or discourage people from engaging in the responsibilities of citizenship, and I tend to favor encouraging engagement. Yeah, Nancy, I want you to uh, think for a minute, not as a journalist, but as a citizen who knows an incredible amount about journalism. Um, and so step back for a minute from your job a little bit. So people don't trust much journalists. They don't much trust people in government. They don't much trust politicians. They think America is not working well. Congress is less popular than a cockroach or having an open wound right now. Um, what is the one thing that media organizations like Time, New York Times, Washington Post could do to make democracy work better? And that might be doubling down on the traditional journalistic mission, but it might require departing from it. So not as a journalist, but as a citizen, what's the one thing that media could do to make democracy work better? Well, one starting point um, is to which goes back to what I talked about bias before, is, is to be willing to talk about the ways in which it is working. And you know, in a way it was extraordinary watching and reading about the anger of you know, the New Hampshire electorate at a time when the New Hampshire unemployment rate is 3.5%. And uh, you, know, the, the, uh, you have 71 straight months of job growth and we you know, defeated the Ebola outbreak. And the, I mean, you can list all of these things that shouldn't be possible and yet are happening, and yet you would never know it because we're all angry and the world is going to hell in a handcart. So I think being willing to actually um, show when, when government and institutions are working is a starting point. I also think, um, and 
I've, this has been something I think is a tremendous challenge to uh, institutions like the Kennedy School, is that there needs to be a bridging of the digital divide. And by this, I don't mean the traditional one of those who have access to broadband and those who don't. I mean the divide in the uses and understanding and leveraging of technology between the public sector and the private sector. I think every time citizens read about either the rollout of healthcare.gov or the FAA's next gen being years behind and billions of dollars over budget, or the VA's computers not being able to talk to each other if they exist at all, um, anytime you encounter uh, a sense that the government is not remotely able to use the tools that in the private sector it's, it's use them or die, that, that with each passing day as that divide opens wider, it is a real problem for the way government and, and politicians and policymakers are going to be perceived if they are not using these tools. I say this as someone who has presided over a newsroom where journalists who started their careers typing on typewriters, who did not like having to learn how to use the computer, who thought email was the bane of their existence, and the idea that they now had to learn how to tweet was just anathema to them because you can't say anything worth saying in 140 characters. I mean, I have lived through the resistance to embracing technology. And the great thing that, that I have watched, and I think that there is this is where there is an opportunity, is again generational, that, that we need to be open to the idea that uh, this first generation of digital natives has a great deal to teach the rest of us in whatever field we are in. I know that, the, that some of the youngest employees in my newsroom, while there is a lot that I need to teach them about the stars we steer by, there is a lot that they can teach me. And it is alarming to me sometimes to watch the, how effortlessly young people are, are leveraging these very, very powerful tools. Um, it is really like it is their first language while it's our second or third. And if you apply that to government, that, that, can, that is a serious problem, in it, but it's an enormous opportunity. Because, of course, technology can make institutions much more effective, much more efficient, much, much more cost-effective. Um, but the resistance to embracing technologies or the ability to do it well is, is a genuine challenge. And, and again, I see it because I see what it has been like for legacy media companies, whether it's the New York Times or Time or NBC News, competing against the Huffington Post or BuzzFeed or digital natives who, are, who have no traditions, no learning curve, no heritage that they had to move beyond. I think our heritage is an enormous asset. But I also am aware that there are things that it took us more time to learn how to do or to be willing to do and try to do than if time were being launched uh, today as a, a digital first. And I say that being very mindful, and I often remind my senior team that Henry Luce um, was a great cross-platform innovator of his time, that he invented a form of media that hadn't existed in the news magazine. He went into video 10 years later. Time won an Oscar in 1937. He went into radio. He went into book publishing. He expanded into other forms 
of media throughout the 20th century as new technologies became available. And there's no question in my mind that if Henry Luce were sitting in you know, the Time headquarters now, that he would just be delirious at the opportunities that technology now affords to create whole new ways of reaching audiences and telling stories. Um, if government is not, you know, writ large, is not uh, embracing this opportunity every bit as eagerly and aggressively, then I think that that is going to be that is going to be a problem in reaching the kinds of solutions that are so important across so many different fields. Yes, sir. Please. I've been going to Charles for a year now, and I've been making it available. I remember one of the first meetings when Trump's name came in and I looked around and either people were rolling their eyes or laughing. And I said, be careful, this, this man is gonna go somewhere because he now controls the press. He can just make one more obscene comment after another and time will follow it and Fox will follow it and CNN will follow it. So my concern is where are the, the Republicans who are the middle of the road how are they dealing with that man who could possibly be their, their savior, if you will, uh, come election time? It, it's fascinating to talk to Republicans now, whether it's you know the, the donors or the operatives or the, the elected officials about what his success from one day to the next uh, means to them, because they, they really do not know what he would do were he to win, who, who he would appoint, what his priorities would be, what stars he steers by. They just don't know. And of course, if you, you know, to the extent that you try to make that judgment based on things he has said or positions he's taken in the past, some of them are well to the left of Bernie Sanders. And so that level of unpredictability in a major party candidate is not like anything I have ever seen before, and it's a it is a real dilemma to them. And so this is why I think you know you're starting to see some of those you know mainstream Republicans coming out and just saying I there is no way I can imagine voting for him. And it is it's a fascinating thing to watch as they each contend with do they endorse him, do they explicitly denounce him, do they stay on the sidelines and wait and see. Uh, it, it's because each of them is confronting a challenge that I don't think any of them expected they would be facing in their public lives. Thank you very much. I'm a city councilor here in Cambridge and I'd like to go back to your earlier comment about the need for government to embrace technology. And while I don't disagree with that, I think we need to understand that governments aren't startups, they're not companies. If Cambridge goes out of business, it's not like Time Magazine going out of business. So we need to be very careful what technological tools we gravitate to and where they will take us because we don't have the option of failing. That's true. Um, but, you know, the flip side of that is. Uh, in what ways might embracing technology lead to failure? I think every institution goes through uh, a transitional time because this is, we are, I mean, again, we are, we are in a whole new place. The, the speed at which 
technology is changing, everything about what we do is is really unprecedented in human history. You know, in right now, every two days, we create as much data as all of humankind created up until 2003. Every two days. <laughs> 500 million tweets a day, 4 billion YouTube videos. It is, it is a volume of content, a volume of data that, that we are not engineered as human beings to know how to contend with. And so I don't think it is an option, although it's very tempting to just, you know, roll up into a little ball and hope it would go away. I think, uh, I think that, that the anxiety that this pace of change induces in people is a powerful motivator of all of these other things that we're seeing. You know, this, this speed of change is very frightening. And helping people get to a place where they see change as, as an opportunity as, rather than as a threat. And this takes me back to, you know, and the, the, I think some of the shrewdest political candidates have been understanding this now for some time. If you think at the 1996 campaign, which was really the first presidential campaign that occurred in the context of the information age. Um, Bill Clinton is running against Bob Dole. So here you have you know, the baby boomer president running for re-election against the greatest generation war hero. And, and Clinton was much mocked in that campaign for all of these micro-initiatives about giving cell phones, which were a fairly new thing, giving cell phones to community watch groups and having you know, school uniforms and all of these were seen as these very little insignificant initiatives and and what I what I thought he was doing and remember this is when he was talking about building a bridge to the 21st century that it was not the text that mattered it, the subtext of what he was saying is you cannot stop this change from coming I can help you make it your friend I can help you contend with it day to day and not have it just throw everything about your life into complete upheaval. And that Clinton understood that this is, this is where at some fundamental visceral level, this is where we were living. And, and candidates who get that, and I think in a sense, you know, that the disruption of globalization is very much um, the reality that we're living with right now, and that that is what candidates are having to figure out a way to speak to, and Bernie Sanders is speaking to it in one way, and Hillary Clinton is speaking to it in a different way, Donald Trump is speaking to it in a different way. Um, but that, I think that, that this issue about speed of change uh, that really no one can keep up with is, is the fundamental reality of our times. And so um, it's, a, it's a challenge to all of you in your lives. It's a challenge to me and mine. But I don't think we have the choice of just saying, and therefore I'm not, I'm, I'm going to pretend it isn't happening. That is the one thing we can't do. Nancy Gibbs, thank you so much. <laughs>